The following is an audio recording recovered from a worn thumb drive shaped like an anthropomorphic ice cream cone, which was purchased at a garage sale in the rural town of Cottonwood Falls, Kansas. everybody. Jane Ripley here. Sorry about the delay for the Morning Maelstrom, your all-new morning announcement series. I'm sure you've heard all of the alarms going off in the main concourse. We've had a little bit of a security issue. I told the guards I needed to be broadcasting to keep everyone updated, but they didn't let me through until just about a minute ago. Okay, I'm still working to figure out what exactly is going on, but from what I can see... Out my very tiny window here in my audio booth, one of our internees appears to be on the loose. Now, the guard said this area is now secure after the... Well, it looks like a goat man. Sorry if that's insensitive, but that's what he looks like. He was going nuts, kicking the walls and the windows. It looks like the guards have him sedated now, though. Oh, there go the alarms. Hopefully I can get an update for you here in a couple of minutes. Sam from IT is out there nosing around for us. I promised he could be my honorary reporter for the morning, so we'll hear from him in just a bit. So this is something completely new to the Morning Maelstrom, but we have our first ever sponsor. The show itself doesn't need any funding, but I figured what the heck, we can use the money for projects around here Like maybe putting it towards the Founders Day event or, I don't know, a cupcake campaign for the lunchroom. We'll see. Anyway, Remy Chapman, one of the chemists who has been studying the mysterious ooze that was found in the Lagu sector recently. Who knows what kind of research he did to figure this out, but Remy has discovered it heals blemishes. So today will be the first day he will sell this new product, which he calls Ooze Infuse. I like that. It's at a booth in the main concourse. If you're interested, he should be setting up within the hour. Now that we're entering a new fiscal year, the comprehensive annual financial report for last year has been released, as well as this year's budget report for operations here at the Deep Reach. Overall, our budget will remain the same. Good news there. That's despite contributions from individual member nations decreasing. To make up for funding shortfalls, the base has been selling some technologies developed here at the Reach to the private sector. A few of our engineering teams have been working hard adapting some of our safer inventions for use in the private sector, and that has been a game changer. The funny thing is, the public just thinks these ideas came out of some genius's garage think tank in Silicon Valley. My favorite invention from the Reach to hit the public shelf so far is the digital photo scanner. 
Now, I was able to get my hands on one of the prototypes cooked up in the Fab Lab, so I've been using my Polaroid to take photos of some of my colleagues around the base and scanning them into my computer. Which reminds me, I got a great photo of Janice in the cafeteria. She had a big old smile on her face, which I thought was a little unusual. Wasn't until later I realized why. Which leads me to our update on the new food vote. Turned out, even though I begged and begged, not enough people voted to add cupcakes to our lunch menu. <sighs> this hurts me more deeply than you can imagine. I overheard Janice bragging that the new menu option is some sort of birdseed-like concoction she whipped up to accommodate the slight, slight uptick in our local population of beans from some no-name world mostly inhabited by a bunch of semi-sentient endothermic creatures so, my new hobby has included printing plenty of copies of Janice's Polaroid for use in my upcoming cafeteria regime change campaign. One of which somehow found its way onto the dartboard here in my booth. I can't imagine who could have done this. Probably Timonius. Okay, as promised, Sam from IT, our apparently new field reporter for the Morning Maelstrom, is here with an update on our little security issue we had which delayed the start of our show this morning. All right, Sam is handing me some notes right now. Okay, do you want to go ahead and explain what... Uh, what? You don't want to talk into the microphone? <laughs> okay, I guess he's shy all of a sudden. He is pointing to the notes. All right, I will read what Sam has gathered for us today. First and foremost, everything is secure. He's underlined that here. Thank you, Sam. Our goat man is actually a lab-created goat man, so that's good. I mean, good that I won't have to go back to sensitivity training again for accidentally calling him the wrong thing. You know, I wonder if he's the creature famous for the Maryland Goatman legend. Have you guys ever heard about this before? I read a lot of those cryptozoology magazines. I think it was a legend about a scientist doing some kind of genetic experiments and accidentally mutates himself into a half-goat, half-man creature, which they say, like, roams the woods and things like that. Okay, it says here his name is Fletch. He was created in Maryland. Interesting. Oh, and there's a little side note here. Sam scribbled there is some controversy about whether this facility is the appropriate place to hold Fletch since he is lab-created rather than natural or supernatural. That's interesting. The U.S. government and the Council of Elders are, the notes say, debating over which facility he should be housed and studied in. So what other kind of facilities are there? Sam? Okay, he's handing me more notes now. Wait, are you serious? You guys, I have some very upsetting news about our first and only, and likely our last, sponsor. Sam has been very busy today. He has just informed me that Remy Chapman has been taken to the sick bay after some horrible side effects from demonstrating his ooze-infused product. I'm sure it goes without saying, but do not use this product unless, of course... You want your skin to end up the consistency of yogurt. Oh, poor Remy. Will he be all right, Sam? Okay, yeah, and it looks like he'll be just fine after some treatment. 
This week I noticed something unusual, and it happened right here in my audio booth. Something or someone created a directory on my computer titled For Jane. Now, other than Timonius, I'm not even sure who had access to this audio booth while I wasn't here. And I've ruled him out as a suspect because, well, first of all, he hates coming in here to clean. I tend to leave a lot of diet soda cans laying around, and he has this adverse reaction to shiny aluminum. Sort of the opposite of a raccoon, you know? Anyway, secondly... Let's just say his appendages lack the dexterous precision necessary to effectively manipulate a keyboard. Whoever it was, though, sure led me on quite the adventure last week where I got to see things in the arcane library that I didn't even know existed. To start from the beginning, I noticed this new directory on my computer while I was prepping last Tuesday's show. So I opened it up. Inside were image files of what looked like scanned photos of runes. You know, like the symbols we have in the different sectors, but different. One of the photos also had a sticky note attached to it with a handwritten message that said, Take this to Quarry, Arcane Library, ASAP. At this point, I'm still not sure if it's some sort of a joke or not, so I printed out the images and went to the Arcane Library. Now, I think that the Arcane Library is one of my favorite places here at the Reach. Next to the arcade, of course. (laughs) I could spend hours lost in the maze of oak shelves and esoteric tomes, breathing in the smell of ancient pages as I read under the soft, warm glow of the dimmed lamps. I found Quarry, the archivist in charge of special collections, deep in discussion with a couple of translators over a stack of leather-bound volumes so ancient it seems like they could just crumble at any moment. When I handed him the pictures, his eyes lit up. I had no answers when he started asking, how did you get this? He told me to follow him as he started buzzing around the library. He was actually walking so fast I had a hard time keeping up. And that's when we came to this part of the library I had never seen before. Emerging beyond the sea of shelves, we stepped through this unassuming door I hadn't noticed before, where I found myself standing at the base of this crazy structure he called the monolith. If you've never seen it... This thing is like a giant cylinder encased in glass, five stories high, and it is filled with bookshelves on the interior. According to Quarry, this is one of the most restricted rooms in the entire Reach. Inside are the rarest, the most important, and the most dangerous documents in the entire library. The base of the monolith is made of a material that Quarry tells me can only be found in one place on Earth— Now, it looks like black marble, but it isn't. Our geologists say they aren't actually sure it's from this earth. At one part of the base is what looks like this outline of a doorway. It's bordered by runes that are carved into that stone-like material with all of these little gauges mounted next to it. So Quarry, still in a huff at this point, is power walking his way up to the monolith when I see him just stop in front of that outline. He starts scanning the floor where I notice all of these measurements marked at different intervals. That's when he explains the importance of the photographs to me. Apparently, one of the primary goals of the Arcane Library is to oversee the translation of other languages and runes like the ones in the images on my computer. And he's only seen runes like these in one other place. These types of runes, he explained, sometimes have certain powers associated with them. 
But to unlock that power, not only do you have to learn how to pronounce the words correctly, you also have to speak in the correct pitch. So they have both a phonetic and a sort of musical component to them. As I shall demonstrate, he said, and he pulled out a leather necklace with what looked like a misshapen tuning fork on it. He held it out at about arm's length in front of him, suddenly looking like some sort of an ancient seafaring wayfinder. He started speaking in some language I have never heard before. He was yelling some of the words, calmly saying others, and all of it had this sort of strange musical quality to it. As he did this, I noticed the gauges next to the outline suddenly sprang to life, apparently in reaction to his voice. As he continued talking, those gauges started lining up, and that is when I started to feel sort of a vibration in the air, almost. That's the best way I can describe it, along with a dull ringing in my ears. And just as I started feeling lightheaded, the black stone inside the outline started changing. At first, it looked a little hazy, like fog behind a glass. I thought maybe it was just my vision blurring. And then it seemed to melt away. And suddenly there was a doorway leading into a monolith. It was like something out of science fiction. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Now, I probably wasn't supposed to go in there, but Quarry was in such a tizzy that he didn't even notice me following him in. He pulled book after book off the shelves, flipping through the pages and muttering to himself as he searched for the only text which might shed some light on what the runes in the images on my computer might mean. Now, while he did that, I had the chance to take a little look around. I was just in awe at the history and magnitude of information inside this structure. Unfortunately, though, my tour was short-lived as security soon arrived and kindly escorted me out of the monolith. But man, what a cool experience. Corey came to me later and told me it is going to take some time to get these runes translated since there aren't currently any other known sources available to cross-reference and help decipher their meaning. He seemed baffled that I, of all people, would have received such unusual files, but while he was extremely curious about what the runes might mean, he was even more curious to know who might have put these files on my computer in the first place. Now, if that's not weird enough, here is where things get strange. Back at the monolith, as I was being escorted out by security, I noticed a handwritten report on one of the shelves we passed by. I only got a brief glimpse, but I am certain the handwriting looked exactly like the handwriting on the note in the scanned photos on my computer. This report, written by none other than my predecessor, Ross the G-Man Wells, who, as you all know, has been missing for several months. Anyway, if you've noticed any suspicious activity or people snooping around my audio booth, I'd love to know about it. Until then, I will probably be getting the locks changed. It is time for our shout-out of the week. Who will get our golden dodecahedron award? Its fun shape is always a good reminder that here in the Deep Reach, we all come in unique shapes and sizes. This week's winner is Victor Cousteau. I asked some of his co-workers to describe him, and they used words like weathered and salty, and they say his love of adventure has left him with some amazing stories. But this week, he had a particularly unexpected and treacherous experience while on duty in the Lagu sector. 
Now, Victor is the warden of the extremely dangerous NE87 population. For those of you without an NE dex handy, NE87 is the designation for those giant aquatic ghosts we all know as the Ninjin. Now, I first saw the Ninjin during one of my immersive training sessions, and these are some of the most unsettling creatures we have here at the Reach. If I recall correctly from the session, they were first classified by a Dr. Cardwell during an expedition to the Arctic Ocean to investigate reports by Japanese research vessels of gigantic humanoid creatures slipping silently past their vessels and then vanishing beneath the ice sheets. <sighs> Turns out Ninjin is actually the Japanese word for human. It's an apropos name for sure. I mean, these things actually have arms. <laughs> And even those little flipper-like things at the end of their tails are a lot like feet. But if you ask me, they look more like freaky albino mermaids the size of whale sharks. Now, we have three of them here living in a tank roughly the size of two football fields, which needs frequent maintenance and upkeep. It was during one of the cleanings last week when the Lagu sector experienced a very brief power outage. Now, these sorts of outages occur all the time. They are normally not a big deal since all essential systems have enough reserve power to last for weeks. But whatever caused this particular outage also caused the locking mechanism on the Ninjin containment tank to malfunction, leaving Stuart Langford, the diver on cleaning duty that day, in a precarious situation. The Ninjin are used to being in the containment tank during maintenance, so they didn't even notice at first that the door separating them from the main tank, and of course the unsuspecting Stuart, was now unlocked. The research team on the other side of the glass, however, realizing what happened, immediately started banging on the glass, gesturing wildly at Stuart, who, bless his heart, at first assumed his co-workers were simply cheering on his good work. When he finally realized what was going on, it was almost too late. By this time, the Ninjin had discovered the gate was unlocked, and being the territorial creatures they are, they set their sights on the hapless intruder, Stuart. Here is the amazing part. The Ninjin weren't the only ones making a beeline for Stuart. So was our hero, Victor Cousteau, who had already leapt into action the moment the locking mechanism malfunctioned. With no time to suit up or arm himself, Victor raced to the tank's entry platform, diving into the icy water. Now, as I mentioned before, the Ninjin, they are dangerous. We're talking extremely dangerous. They're also pack hunters. And if that's not enough, they are also poisonous. Since they are relatively slow creatures, instead of using just raw speed to take down their prey, several of them will get together and secrete large amounts of a hallucinogenic compound that'll incapacitate anything that swims through their vaguely purple cloud, leaving their prey vulnerable and unaware as they are slowly and methodically consumed. Lovely. Of course, when I say they're relatively slow, I mean they won't be winning races with a dolphin or an orca, but they definitely will outswim a human, especially if that human is wearing full diving gear and equipment like Stuart had on. Now, by the time Victor had reached Stuart, the Ninjin were nearly upon them. Two of the Ninjin had already started secreting their compound and circling above Victor and Stuart in an effort to disperse the toxin. By the way, I've seen them doing this in the water before when they're feeding on animals. They look like giant 
ghosts gliding in formation through the water, it is extremely eerie to witness. As the third one closed in, Victor, realizing they had no chance to outswim the ninja, did something I'm not sure many would have had the clarity of mind to do in such a moment of panic and terror. Grabbing the underwater cutting torch that was clipped to Stuart's utility belt with one hand and wrapping his other arm around Stuart, he switched on the torch. Now, I had to verify this next part with the scientists who were watching because I thought this must have been some over-exaggerated tall tale. However, multiple independent sources have confirmed with me that Victor, in that split second before certain death, brought the torch to the base of Stuart's scuba tank, piercing it, causing the compressed air to rapidly release from the bottom of the tank, sending Stuart and Victor, who was <laughs> holding on for dear life, shooting past the engine like a rocket toward the safety of the entry platform. I'm not sure who was more surprised about the sudden dramatic escape, Victor and Stuart, or the ninja. I'm told the cheers and thunderous applause from the onlookers as Victor and Stuart made their way back into the facility went on for a good 10 minutes. The doctors checked them out afterward. Both were relatively unharmed, although Victor, who was free diving, did end up absorbing some of the toxins, which Stuart managed to avoid. He was covered in that full diving gear. Victor suffered some minor hallucinations as a result, telling doctors this, quote, I must have gotten some of the toxin on me because I've just seen the luminary, but he's been dead for decades. Now, the luminary, as you know, that was the nickname of one of the Reach's founding members and first imperator. He passed away in 59. Regardless, Victor is doing just fine now, and while I can't think of anyone more deserving of this week's Golden Dodecahedron Award than the heroic Victor Cousteau... I think Stuart should also be an honorary recipient as well. After all, he did manage to finish cleaning the tank before this terrifying rescue. So congratulations to you both. I'll present your awards later on this afternoon. All right, that does it for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Morning Maelstrom. Next time, you'll be getting your daily updates, but I also want to go over some very unusual observations I've made about our arcade and what implications it might have for national security. Let's hope we aren't delayed again by any sort of Goatman excursions. Until then, keep reaching. <laughs>